Hello, I'm Jason Solomons and welcome to Seen Any Good Films Lately, the podcast bursting with movies and recommendations from the best in the business. First film I ever saw, I was three years old. My grandmother took me to see Cinderella, the Disney cartoon. I sat through it twice and I was never the same. Um, fish tank. Fish tank. Fish tank. The very French way of saying that title, I must admit. My guests on this show are award-winning French director Audrey Divin, whose film, Happening, carried off the Golden Lion at Venice and property billionaire turned cinematic heritage saviour, Charles Cohen. We talk about the power of cinema and how it can change a place and change hearts and minds. We'll hear from Audrey and from Charles right after I tell you if I've seen any good films lately. There are two quite similar Hollywood meta-comedies out now. I caught up with The Lost City, starring Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum, a super silly but not unenjoyable adventure rom-com in the romancing the stone vein, if you're old enough to remember that one. Bullock plays a romance novelist who does all these adventure stories about finding lost treasure and going to the jungle and there's always a heroine and there's always a handsome hero called Dash in her books. And he's played by Channing Tatum as the hunky book cover model. And when she's kidnapped at a book launch that she does with Channing Tatum, she's taken to a desert island to find hidden treasure by an evil British billionaire played by Daniel Radcliffe told you it gets complicated these setups tatum then goes after her with the help of an extraction specialist come meditation guru played with swaggering humor by brad pitt the red sage getting you out of here why are you so handsome my dad was a weatherman Hey, whoa, she doesn't need saving in there. Uh, What are you doing in there? Look, these things do tend to run out of steam and your patience can run out of them. But Bullock has been terrific at this stuff for so many years and she hasn't changed at all. I kept thinking, God, the first time I saw you was in um, the the, the Keanu Reeves, uh, Dennis Hopper movie on the bus, Speed, and then you did The Net. That's a long time ago, The Net. The internet and the world has changed since those days of dial-up. But Bullock hasn't changed at all, even tumbling through the lost jungle in a pink sequin jumpsuit and maintaining a smile on a face that hasn't seemed to change very much either. Channing Tatum does a decent line in self-deprecation too. He's happy to take his top off to reveal leeches on his bum and to look ridiculous in a big blonde wig. You can only do that if you're rock solid certain of your abs and your star status. Look, we went as a family. We laughed at the banter and at the squabbling, which is all of that sort of, uh, oh, you know, oh, okay, so that just happened. And I'm going to do, oh, okay, that sort of stuff. That's where Screwball has come <laughs> from the days of <laughs> the days of Hildy Johnson and Cary Grant and Claudette Colbert. That said, it still works. It's called The Lost City. More divisive, it seems to me, as a comedy, although I liked it, is The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, which I did find pretty funny. It stars Nicolas Cage spoofing his years of accrued persona on and off camera. He plays an actor called Nicolas Cage, who's looking for the next big part, and he's also in therapy with his teenage daughter about their relationship, which he always hijacks, until he himself is hijacked, of sorts, by a Mallorcan billionaire and cage-obsessive, played by Pedro Pascal, a guy called Javi, who wants them to really write a script together. All right, all right, I get it. You're making this up? What is this, like a a little um, Stanislavski improv thing? Well, you can stop. Stanislavski, is he part of the resistance? Stop! I am your guest! Gabriella ripped the bedspread off me this morning. Now you're sending me on like a wild goose chase. I'm sorry, but you can't quit acting. You can't. That's none of your business. Whether you like it or not, you have a gift. And that gift brings light and joy to an increasingly dark and broken world. And to turn your back on that gift is to turn your back on the entire human race. Human race? I'm afraid so. 
Then there's the CIA, who's represented by Tiffany Haddish. There's a black character in the uh, who plays Sandra Bullock's agent in the uh, the Lost City as well. So you've still got that sort of you know wisecracking black character popping up in here for good or ill, I suppose. Uh, the, the CIA then asks Cage to spy on Javi for them because Javi is allegedly part of an organised crime syndicate who kidnapped a Catalan politician's daughter. There you go. You see, we're quite similar territory here. There's a lot of silly business that comes afterwards with Cage, uh, but he mainly has fun dismantling his legacy from Con Air to Face Off and Moonstruck to Gone in 60 Seconds and Crudes 2 and The Rock. They all make jokes about these things, and even he does too. Sharon Horgan plays his ex-wife. They met, she was a makeup artist on the set of Captain Corelli's Mandolin. Incidentally, directed by last week's guest on this show, John Madden. See, we can all get a bit meta, can't we? Uh, and then the film's all about how this will drag itself to an ending, while Cage and his co-star, Pedro Pascal, bicker and banter about how movies that bicker and banter lack any real plot to move them along, whilst they find a plot that moves this one along. Look, it takes all of what, Cage refers to as his nouveau shamanic acting ability to save this film. But I think he does it. And it's a fun film referential comedy. A bit wild at heart, a little weird on top, but nothing obviously like as crazed as anything as the real Cage has ever been in Sea Raising Arizona, Adaptation, or even Bad Lieutenant. In the end, this is a bit what it's satirising, i.e. just another Nick Cage film in which he's got no idea if he's in a good or a bad movie. It's just him working and acting and being Nicolas Cage. But that is often enough for me. Serious stuff now with Venice Winner Happening, a film set in 1963 France uh, in sort of the suburbs rather than Paris and at a new town university where Anne is a promising literature student whose life threatens to crumble when she discovers she's pregnant. And it's about the nightmares she faces trying to find an abortion, something which could lead to her imprisonment or her death, as well as endangering any friends and family she might happen to tell about it. Anna-Maria Vartolome won the most promising newcomer at the César, and director Audrey Duvan got a BAFTA nomination for directing. Uh, and that's when I caught up with Audrey when she came to London, and she was nominated alongside her compatriots, Julia de Corneau, for... Titan, Céline Sciamma was up for Petite Maman, and they were alongside the feminist filmmaker guru of them all, Jane Campion. But I began by asking Audrey if this story of a young woman's choices forced and restricted in a moral and legal society dictated by men was a story she'd long wanted to tell. I was uh, in love with Annie Arnaud's writing for ages. I come from books. I was a publisher when I was younger. And I wrote novels, so yeah. my... And you were a journalist as well, I think. I was a journalist, and I wrote about books. So. You were a, a book critic? Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah. Like, like I'm a film person. Yeah, exactly. Books. Okay. As long as I remember, I was really inspired by her work, by the way she tells story without telling her own legend. She can even be cruel to herself. She tried to carefully look at her story, at her past, and go to the right to the rightness of the moment, and that's the way she writes. She writes using the I person, mm -hmm. but to to a point, and and with a way of doing it that at some point it's not only her but many other women, because what she tells haven't been told before, in that very honest way. So lots of women relate in I her see. experience. But if I'm just get. It's correct. The, the, the narrative is told from this first person yes. perspective. So we're really in the character yeah. that Anna Maria plays in your film. I had the feeling reading uh, Happening that I was the girl yeah. or that I was watching the girl with a cam recorder that didn't exist in 63 <laughs> yeah. and uh, that I was emerged in some kind of intimate thriller I couldn't get out. So I had to read it from the beginning to the end. Also, it's a short, quite, quite a short book. When I discovered it, I just had an abortion myself. Uh -huh. And and so I, I, I was able to confront the the, the two different experiences. Wow, that must have been powerful reading that. In I, I, I was struck by something, is that medicalized abortion goes with some kind of a routine, and it always always something can happen, but still it, it, relay, it rely on a routine. And a woman going through illegal abortion 
only rely on something else, it's random. And I thought it was cra a crazy idea, you know. We, each journey is going to be different and it only depends on who you're, who's, who you're gonna meet cross by yeah. this time. Are they going to help you or, or turn you to the police, you know? Are you going to die, survive, end up in jail? I mean, this is uh, lots of strong questions for a young life. It hadn't occurred to me, you know, I'm a man um, and <laughs> I'm also not French, but I, and I wasn't alive in 1963. But all of those questions, my mum must have had them or her friends must have had them. Oh, nowadays women are having this question on their minds because they are not in countries where they're allowed yeah. to get an abortion. When was it legal in France? 75. 75 still. So this is... Um, because it seems like a politically powerful thing to talk about then mm. and maybe when you say you're making a film about abortion people say well now but that you know we've won that war we've had that battle yeah how did you I, sort of say no it's still relevant no now? but sorry but first of all i heard that a lot while trying to find money yes and i answer to those people because they said but why do you want to make a movie about it now you you have the law on your side and i was okay I really do hope that you'll say the same thing to the next director who's coming to you and wants to make a movie about World War II, right? Because, you know, we, they are never told the war is over, even if it is. So I think it's a tricky answer anyway, because even not considering all the countries mm -hmm. where it's illegal, we are not allowed to talk about it because the law exists. Or oh, even better, there was already a movie and they mentioned Munju. Oh, okay, we've made one movie. Oh, sorry. And this movie takes place in another country under Ceausescu. This is before four months, three weeks, two days. Uh, huh? Four months, three weeks, two days. Yes, yeah. exactly. We won the Palme d'Or. Yeah. But you know, it's, it's, oh, it's, it's, it's yeah. Romania, yeah. and it's under Ceausescu, and it's a completely different story. Yeah. But inside there is an illegal abortion, so it's been made. Well, we also had Vera Drake, Audrey. You know, we, yeah, and, be, and so. never rarely sometimes. But I mean, <laughs> we need to have more of them. And I'm a huge Munju's fan. Yeah, fa it's a brilliant fan. Film. And but come on, how, how can we say that reality is? If we want to to put reality in a movie, it's one t it's a one time thing, you know. And then it's your, your movie's not really about abortion, though. Anyway, I I I am I'm happy that you mentioned it because I never wanted to do a movie about uh, illegal abortion. But I was in love with the character. Mm. Um, the way she talks about her sexual desire, her willing to have an intellectual future, about the way she goes from a social class to another, transfugee, which is not an easy path neither. And the way she does all those things with determination. And I would always say to Anna Maria Bartolome, to the actress, you are like a soldier, never forget about the soldier. Because she's off to fight a battle, she's off to be brave, she's at why? She has to be brave and fight uh, until she's free, you know, until lights come uh, comes yeah. again. But she had, yes, but it, uh, she was, she had great light at the start, you know, with such a great future. And that this terrible, first of all, it's a secret, first of all, it's a shame, mm. and it's a mistake, all of these things play in her, in her mind. Yeah, and I asked her, her and I, we work together on inner monologues. Yeah. So every time she's silent, she had something strong in mind that she was trying to get to the audience. And she won the, the break, what do we what call it, Espoir, the best. Meilleur Espoir, féminin. Breakthrough. So, breakthrough for performance, yeah. yeah. <laughs> At the César. Yes. Uh, and how did that make you feel as her director? I'm, I'm so proud, but it, it's crazy because we were so close now, and I guess we'll, it, it will stay that way, you know. So everything that can happen, I'm, I'm happy as a mother. <laughs> <laughs> you, you must feel some kind of maternal feel towards her even though you're quite young yourself I mean so. I mean we were very close because I knew that what what I was asking her was very hard to do uh, she has to trust me mm. pretty much uh, in every dimensions uh, the, the sexual sequences everything that includes pain and we went through all that together and then the happiest journey of the movie that we've never expected before 
And the bond that we have today is so strong. So you never expected to win the Golden Lion at Venice. You never expected to win the, the Best Newcomer at the Scissors. You never expected to, win, to be nominated as Best Director at the BAFTAs. <laughs> Presumably, you, never, you just can't think No, but I, I, I prevent myself from being disappointed, so I never expect anything. Yeah. So if something nice happened, it's a total surprise. But I have to tell you that even during the ceremony, we, I was called back, so I knew that I had Venice. once in Venice that I won something but I had no idea what it was actually they told me that I could do my speech in French and it would be translated so basically I spent the whole ceremony with my my, my, my husband Thibaut Gass and we were on Google Translate because I was like hey finally they're all making their speech in English so I have to do so so I met the, so I'm the whole ceremony like the worst French people trying to have my, my, my speech translated and I didn't realize that sometimes I was looking at my uh, at my producer and he was like oh my god the awards are going on and you still don't have yours it means something yes. and, I, and I was concentrated on the speech in order not to expect anything until the very last moment the same thing for Julia do you call her can <laughs> you know you've called back and even Spike Lee had even made the mistake and said, yeah, yeah but she's thinking yeah she told so, me <laughs> so you have the similar stories but I have I've been called back I must have won something but you're expecting early <laughs> in the ceremony you know like new, new film or something and then the other one both of you golden you're both golden yeah and we it's funny because we know each other for for, for many years yeah. you know yeah. so actually when I saw her winning in Cannes I was in Italy and I watched the ceremony on my phone and I literally cried and I couldn't ever imagine that I would leave such the same thing a few months later. That's, that's crazy. <laughs> I will always remember that. What's your, your story? You said you were a writer, a journalist. Mm -hmm. How, when did you become a filmmaker? How did you become a filmmaker? Why did you become a filmmaker? Um, you know, I finally find the answer and it was in Bong Juno's movie. Because I went to see Parasite, and at some point somebody say, uh, the, the father said, you know what plan always succeeds? The one that doesn't exist. I was like, hey, this sounds familiar. I, I do agree with that. And this was just a few months before he gave me the golden lion. So read, you should believe in plans that doesn't exist. So I go step by step, and I feel free to uh, experience whatever I want to experience, to make mistakes also, you know, uh, to try things. So I met science, political, and journalism studies, and then and I, and I in knew Paris. in Paris, and I wanted to. I always wanted to write, but I experienced a lot of different style and 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 dimensions of writing. So first of all, journalists, and it, it gave me a strong relationship to reality. Then I I, I work on the literature um, business films. I don't know how to say that. Yeah. And uh, um, so I was a publisher. So I helped. Um, writers to build their structure so I learned a lot from that experience until I in terms of novels but not, not of scenarios screenplays and then novel I wrote novels yeah. so I learned how to how it works inside the head of the character and then I'm asked to work for TV and I meet uh, uh, my ex-partner that is a filmmaker and he wants me to write for him okay. so I, I experiencing and it's, it was very interesting because uh, he wanted to make thrillers, and it's not my culture at all. I'm I'm more independent author movies, so I have to watch all these films I've never watched before, and and I I feel very lucky and rich because all the universe I go through, I'm rich of them. You know, I I keep something well, from them. Happening is a thriller, though. It's intimate, so yeah, it's always you're always uh, the results of so many experiences. What, film, what film did he make you watch this? Melville, lots of Melville, uh, all the the the, dark, the 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 cinema noir of, of the seventies. The, 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 how do, do you the film noir of the seventies? The, the film noir of the seventies. American film noir. The American noir. film noir of the seventies. Sort of and then, and also, I mean, he, lo he like loved Friedkin. Uh, yeah. yeah, so. It was opening well, you. Well, they're really very good films. Huh? They're very good those films. Yeah, <laughs> the best and and Hollywood of course, did. and 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 that was not my, my culture. So yeah. it's opening new doors. What you know? was your favorite that you discovered? It's hard for me to to pick one. I mean, I I'm always I hate that question because I literally leave. I have to tell you, if I'm not in theater, I live at my video club that still exists. <laughs> so I go twice, th three times a week. And pick old movies, 
in order to see them again. So maybe Le Cercle Rouge, I won't have the, 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 the English title. Le Cercle Rouge, the Red the, Circle. The Red Circle of yeah. Melville would yeah. be my answer. That would be your fact. But what about the 70s Hollywood ones that you saw, that you discovered? Um, French Connection. Yes, French Connection. Yeah. 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 But uh, I remember those two because there was a huge reference uh, to this uh, filmmaker, all, and we saw them several times mm -hmm. also. They're good films. Yeah. But, uh, but I'm saying it must have come in there because happening has a tense you know breathless you are like this you know what's going to happen you know to her so I felt like I was that your camera was so close but you know I feel the same when I watch even to to Ken Loach's movie that I love mm. and it's somehow it's the the, the fatum the determined situation that gets every people to go to the end and you cannot reverse the situation and I think that's uh, something I always had in mind. Uh -huh. I mean, I have such different references that help me. What were your references for, for happening? Um, I shared them with, with Anna Maria, and we both built some kind of um, common references from Rosetta, from Les Dardennes. Oh, um, Rosetta. Rosetta, yeah. Um, Fish Tank. Fish tank. Fish tank. <laughs> fish tank. <laughs> the very French way of saying that title, I must admit. Uh, to Girl from Lucas Dont, uh, Son of Soul. I oh, mean, uh, yeah. well, I can see them now. Elephant. Gus Van Sant. Yeah, so everyone help us building some kind of a common language. Yeah, but I can feel that camera. Mm -hmm close and hmm. sort of saw the one but yours isn't one take is it it's not uh, did you think about doing it in one no what do we call it a tra uh, uh, what do you call it uh, one uh, take one take yeah no it couldn't work because if you want to do one take like Victoria was but actually Son of Soul is not one take mm. they do some tricks no, but I, I sometimes not, no, no. He cuts from time to time, but, but he does do long. He, he does. He use long takes, but if you want to do this. Uh, there's a unit of time so you start and you end it's uh, what you have to tell your story it's an hour and a half yeah. to two hours at most like boiling point the, uh, yeah. the one we have here at the bathroom yeah I yeah chef in French yeah I really want that with Stephen Graham I yeah. really want to see that he looks amazing he's, he's great and technically it's you know mm. sort of a tour de force but okay <laughs> <laughs> but you know there is one take and you're like are they going to drop the <laughs> What's the first film you ever saw? Ah, I can't remember what the first film I ever saw. I can tell you that uh, my parents let me watch several numbers of time an, a Japanese version of The Little Mermaid that was so depressing. <laughs> and actually she sacrificed her in every ways. And I was like, weren't you afraid that would actually impact my psyche until the end of my life? <laughs> And uh, yeah, we talked a lot about this one. Uh, I didn't really think the world that way. I, it was not that common in the early 80s, you know. You put children in front of, uh, uh, of what Disney looked like, yeah. not realizing it's a manga version, and it's, it's even worse, you know. <laughs> Where did you live? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Paris. My, uh, I was supposed to be born in, in Lebanon, but my, um, my parents settled there because my father is Lebanese. Uh, my mother is half French, half Romanian, and they settled there in '79 before I was born. But it was the war, mm -hmm. and Bolet would go through the apartment, so uh, they they ran away and finally settled down in France. And I always asked myself, what would have my life have been, you know, if they if they've stayed there? I'm not sure I would have done what they, they what just, you do now. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Or you'd have, you don't know. There no, was a, but there, it's a strange idea. There's a film called Memory yeah. Box. Did yeah, exactly. Uh, Memory Box is Memory from uh, Joanna uh, and Aji Thomas. Yes, yes. Adji and Khalil, uh, yeah, Khorej. Khorej, and they live in Paris, but they, yeah. they, that's the memory of yeah. discovering. And I know I'm in touch with them. And I, yeah, and I also admire their work. I was, not long ago, I was in Berlin and I saw their work in a, Kunstwerk, uh, in the museum that I love. Mm -hmm. and I also love their work as uh, artists. Well, you're you've got the Lebanese connection. It's quite recent. I don't know much Lebanese, but lately I, I, I met Nadine Labaki. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, 
Yeah, I'm happy to have the chance to talk with other Lebanese filmmakers. Mm. And it's Divan, we say that? Divan. Divan, you do, it's mm. in French, Divan. Okay, I think people don't know that in England, I'm going to tell them. Hey, all. thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> tell them all, Audrey Divan. Well, look, it's been fantastic talking to you. For me too. I have to go and see a film now. <laughs> uh, I don't know what time it is, but I do have to go and see a film. Um, what, do you have a film poster? A few, like a, do you have film posters in your house, in your... Yes. Yeah. What have you got? Yeah, my producers uh, offered me as a gift to find my first movie, um, a, a French movie that was very important to us doing this one. It's César et Rosalie from Claude Sauté, and it's a huge poster. César and Rosalie. Yes. Why is it so important to you, that film? Because um, while talking about the end, I was never finding the last sequence of the movie the way I wanted to find it. And once we were talking about it, and he said, yes, like in César et Rosalie, like the end and it was like yeah something like it but we were not talking about the same sequence and when he saw the movie realized the mistake we were not talking about the same thing but both of the sequence were in Cesar and Rosalie and it made us smile and it's our secret which is not a secret anymore about the first movie so this is what a good producer does give you ideas talk to you about no it was it was nothing we would we had we hadn't met again, but it was just this one conversation. Mm-hmm. And now you have the poster. And now I have the poster. <laughs> well, that's a great poster story. Audrey, do you want delightful story? <laughs> Lovely to meet you. Congratulations on happening. Beautiful film. Thank it really you. is great. But you haven't seen that yet. Which one? Happening. The siege. Don't you start. Lovely to meet you. Lovely to meet you too. And Happening by Audrey Duvan is excellent. Uh, It's out in cinemas from Picture House releasing this Friday, April the 22nd here in the UK. Another female filmmaker French language picture is also out this week. It's called Playground by Belgium's Laura Vandel. A sharp, intense and rather beautiful film told from a child's eye height about a little girl, Nora, who goes to her her school and is reluctant to go, but she's got her big brother, Abel, there. But she witnesses Abel being bullied by uh, some bigger kids in the playground, and she can't seem to do anything about it. She doesn't know what to do. And she keeps it secret, but then she tells her dad, and then she tells one of the teachers, but nothing seems to quite happen to protect poor Abel until he's really a bit of a wreck. Uh, And this starts affecting Nora's own little life and her own classmates, because they won't invite her to a party. In French, Playground's just called Un Monde, a world. And the film's strength is its ability to convey the turbulence of this children's universe, so large and dangerous to them. But it's all they know, this school, its corridors and its classrooms and the wildness of break time in the playground. It's kind of Grange Hill done by the Dardenne brothers, but you never see the adults unless they come down to your level. I found this smart, suffocating stuff. It's very affecting and very relatable. It's called Playground. My next guest is a passionate defender of cinemas. He owns them. He restores them. He loves them. He would. He's a property billionaire. Charles Cohen, who also owns the Curzon chain here in the UK. uh, And he distributes French film in the US. He owns the landmark cinema chains there. And he's restoring in Paris La Pagode. Uh, making it into a cinema hub for creativity, not without local controversy over the unique Japanese gardens of that Paris landmark in the 7th arrondissement. But he's also been restoring classic movies, uh, such as the uh, Merchant Ivory collection, and he's been producing new ones, including Operation Mincemeat, which we featured last week, the war espionage thriller with Colin Firth and Matthew McFadden, Ed Al. So this was a great opportunity to meet up with a billionaire, a fellow Francophile, a fellow film fan, cinema fan, and a fellow film producer, might I add, just at the time when film culture is going through this rapid change in the streaming worlds and the worlds of grand old movie picture houses and boutique cinemas are coexisting. How long can this go on for, I wondered? And he should know as property billionaire and investor expert, which will win out. 
every film that we've ever restored from our library has always been mandated to have a theatrical release. The first window is the most important. In a way, in my own mind, maybe it legitimizes the experience. You know, I like to think that people have a kitchen at home, but they still go out to eat. And, and so I'm very much about the place and in particular going to the cinema for both classic film, contemporary film, contemporary classic film. You know, they're all different kinds of entertainment, all different kinds of film. It's the most transformative medium. And um, I think there's no substitute for sitting shoulder to shoulder with an audience and laughing and crying and, and ooing and eyeing and, and everything that happens in a dark room with a window on the world, as opposed to all the distractions that you might have, no matter how great your technology is at home, the doorbell rings, the phone rings. It just, for some reason, you know, it, it's, there's a commercial interruption. It, it's those interruptions that I think break the uh, the sanctity of the cinema going experience. And you think that that can kind of survive against the the, the onslaught of the uh, of the streaming situation? You know, you, you you saw the Oscars as much as I did. We were if a film from Netflix didn't win, it was a film from Apple TV that won. Although well, ultimately Will, Will Smith won. But anyway, you know, I think the cinema world has survived television. Um, it survived uh, Betamax, it has survived everything, and it will continue, um, you know, filmmakers, and that's part of the DNA of both landmark theaters that I own in the US and Curzon in the UK, filmmakers want to see their films in theaters, and I believe their agents want them to have that um, distinction of being able to be revered and appreciated as an artist as a film artist and not as someone that just makes great television because that's what it is it's still television yeah I, I i totally agree with you i'm i'm sort of playing devil's advocate to you even though i completely am on your side so i just feel as an interviewer we're on the same side we're on the same side i mean you're younger than me i'm 70 and um Film going has always been a passion and uh, ever since I was a little kid. What was the first film you ever saw at the cinema, Charles? First film I ever saw, I was three years old. My grandmother took me to see Cinderella, the Disney cartoon. I sat through it twice and I was never the same. <laughs> where did you go? Do you know where it was? Yes, it was uptown in New York. My, my grandparents lived in Washington Heights, which was an upscale uh, Jewish enclave at the time. Now it's a, a Latino uh, area. But um, it uh, it was a transformative experience. You know, the Disney films, I was a little kid. I was three. It was 1955. What's your favorite cinema in the world? My favorite cinema in the world. Uh, I have to I have many more than one. Go on. You can give me a couple then. Well, have you been to my cinema in New York that I did a few years ago, The Quad? I did a beautiful job. Oh, The Quad is yours. Yes. Well, it's a beautiful place. Yeah. What a great place. Have you been there re I, since I did it? I, I have, yeah, I have. I must have gone just before the pandemic, to, to 2019, right. November. Type, yeah. So I, so I did that one. Um, you know, I, I have a theater that I, I redid now twice in the Pacific Design Center on the West Coast. It's called the Silver Screen. It's, it's not a traditional cinema. It's, it's mostly studios use it, but it's a beautiful widescreen 300 seat cinema. Um, I had the fortune, good fortune as a board member of the Lighthouse for the Blind to uh, redo the uh, East Coast uh, chapter of the uh, uh, Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. I redid that theater. They subsequently closed it down, but that was also, a, that was a 200 seat theater. So, um, and I have some other historic theaters I'm, I'm, I'm working on. So, you, so is that a little, you know, because you've done La Pagode and you've done the Quad, is that, you know, maybe may some, you know, they're, oh, sure. a, they're all historic venues, right? That's right. That's right. So to me, it, it, it ticks a lot of boxes that are important to me about preservation of also the, uh, the uh, theater as a place. Yeah, because I think that's where the, the, that's where the difference between, you know, watching TV at home and the theater. We go there with our and, and just going there to the act of, of this communal space that the walls have seen so many images and heard so many sounds they've picked up all of this this patina of of, of drama of romance of comedy that the, the place where it is reverberates with story 
And because we go there, we don't get that at home. If I, t- if I, I mean, that's why I asked you your favorite f- film that you went to see when you were a kid. You know, you remember it immediately. But if I, I could have asked you a TV show, you won't remember where you were. You were of course, home, this you know? is too disposable. But you know, the theater, uh, the cinema as a sanctum, which is it's private. Your phone should be turned off. The, there's no uh, ringing telephone. There's no doorbell ringing. There's no messenger at the door. There's no one tapping you on the shoulder. If you know what I mean, can I have a word with you? The human connection to the cinema is almost of a religious nature, that it commands and demands respect and your full attention, which is something in a world that we live in is very hard to come by these days. Why French cinema for you? Why are you so... Uh, so uh, you know, I, I, when I was a young lad, in, and I went to public school outside of New York in a small town in the suburbs, um, there was a uh, one-screen theater, and that's where I saw the Truffaut films and, and the uh, Fellini films. And um, there was always a romanticism and a sex, a, a sex appeal for me with French cinema. It was, it was, it was a way to escape the small town where I was. Do you know the name of the cinema that you, that, that you saw all these amazing films at? It was one little, one screen cinema. You don't know, you remember, don't remember its name? Oh yeah, it was, it was a town. It was, a, I lived in Harrison. It was the Harrison Cinema. All but, of know, that, but all of that's still in your, you know what I mean? All that impacted on you. Of course, hundred percent. I would go there uh, with a friend and, and see, you know, all the films that I came to love and that meant so much to me uh, growing up and, and being a student of film. When I, began my interest in film, um, the study of film. There were no film schools, or if there were, I wasn't aware of them. So there was a public library, there was a school library. I used to go into Manhattan and there was a bookshop on uh, West 47th Street called the uh, Gotham Bookmark. It's a very famous bookstore. Um, You know, if you were a well-known author, you were speaking there. Ezra Pound went there, if you can imagine. So there there was a sign over the door of a fisherman with a fishing rod and a fishing boat. And it said, Gotham Bookmark, wise men fish here. And that's where I was able to buy Sight and Sound and all the different film magazines um, that were there at the time. And some of the books um, that I picked up, uh, Carol Rice's book on the art, uh, the technique of film editing, things like that. And, and I have a library of film resource books that I think are timeless. French cinema was also a way to, for me to get into the business after I had produced Frozen River. Um, and realized that I was not close enough to recouping my investment, that I needed to become a distributor. And at that time, the uh, distribution, this was about three years after Frozen River, so about 2010, the uh, distribution business, there were a lot of smaller companies that were failing. And I thought, well, why shouldn't I try to become a distributor? And there was a gentleman that I had gotten close to who had negotiated on the other side of the lighthouse uh, in connection with the uh, East Coast Theater for the you know the Oscar uh, uh, Academy members, um, and he said, "Well, I have a friend, and he's done this before. Why don't we go to Paris?" So we went to Paris together, and uh, we went to visit Studio Canal, and they had a film that had no U.S. distribution, and it was called Outside the Law uh, or, or La Loi. And I got to become great friends with the filmmaker and actually uh, produced about four or five of their films. Who and, made Or La Loi? I shouldn't remember off the top. It was Rashid Bouchereb. Oh, yes, Rashid Bouchereb. It's a, he's, he's fantastic. The film is fantastic. Yes, and he had done Before That Days of Glory. Which, which I also, which is an extraordinary film. Right, and it was the same characters, but a different setting. This was yes. during the Algerian War of Independence. Which no one had touched as a filmmaker. You needed an Algerian-born Frenchman to do that. Exactly right. So he and I became good friends and we were fortunate in getting the picture into the Paris theater and getting an Oscar nomination. We went to the Oscars. That was now my third nomination, having two for um, Frozen River. So Melissa and for, yeah. Eight nominations and we won uh, five foreign language nominations and we won uh, in connection with uh, The Salesman which we did together with Amazon. So we actually, I actually handed Jeff Bezos, we held the Oscar together for a while before <laughs> it had to go back to Iran, never to come back again. But how does it, how, when you talk to Jeff, you know, who's a streamer, let's call it, he's a king of many things, but he's also a streamer. Uh, when you talk about, you know, you and your physical cinemas, as you think, well, do you have a, 
Do you have a contretemps about that? Not really. I never discussed it with him. <laughs> it was just enough to just shake his hand. We were at the Vanity Fair party and to take a picture and uh, see you. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> because, I mean, I love the French cinema like you. Are. I'm producing my first movie at the moment. And it's a, oh, it's, great. Yeah, it's an Anglo-French movie. French, French cinema for me has always been about universal topics. It's about family. And whether it's France or America, the, the, uh, the only thing that's different is the language and maybe some of the scenery. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, French cinema for me has always been a breath of, breath of fresh air and uh, a vacation on a screen. Have you ever fallen in love at the cinema? I would think so. Yes. Who it's we? my mistress. It's my mistress. Yeah. All of them. Yeah. This is it. I ask this question. People think, do I mean going on a date with people or not? And I, what I mean is I, I fall in love almost every time I look at the screen. And it could be with a, it's usually with a French actress. If, if I'm honest, that, that's my secret. But I, and, and, you I know, I've had the pleasure of having a, a lunch or dinner with so many of the great actresses, whether it be Audrey Tattoo or, or Catherine Deneuve, uh, Isabelle Huppert. I mean, they're, and I consider them all friends. Yeah. So and I, I think you people would because you're supporting cinema and all of those people that you mentioned I've also had the, the joy to interview Isabel who appeared just recently and the physical the physical act of telling your story to an audience that that's what I think is lost when they, when it goes to streamers they don't quite know where they are well, it, you know it becomes um, I don't think the word is fungible but it's just such and I don't want to use the wasteland it's just such a landscape that is so deep of content um, that it doesn't have the distinction and the differentiation of being special, of it being an occasion. You know, when you would get, if you go out on a date, you'd put on a sport jacket or maybe even a tie. And when I was growing up, they had these roadshow films where you had to have reserved seats. It was like going to the theater. It was special. There was an intermission. It was special. And um, it was no different than going to the theater. Is there a film that changed your life, Charles? Not one film, but you know, there are films that are transform, uh, trans, transformational, like uh, Citizen Kane and The Godfather, even Gladiator. There are films that you can go back to time and time again and still be riveted. <laughs> Sit there and watch something that you've seen maybe 20 times, but see something memory is a funny thing yeah. you know we remember what we want to remember but a film the two-hour film there's a lot to remember there's so sometimes, you, sometimes you know, there's a film that you and, see and, and you, you come out you know you're changed from watching it that either either that you've fallen in love with the actress or you've fallen in love with the, a new screen hero or you've, you've been told a story that completely shocks you and changes your changes your life view you know there's some of those uh uh, Michael Haneke films that did that to me. That That's you right. Out, that you That's you right. are completely a, a new person from the person that went in two hours previously. But, you know, inter- interestingly enough, so we're talking about becoming a distributor. So from, from becoming a distributor, I would go to the Toronto Film Festival. So I went to the Toronto Film Festival the first time. And um, I had read a book by Ben McIntyre, which was Operation Mincemeat. Yeah. And I thought it was a wonderful book. And I thought it had tremendous cinematic um, uh, possibilities. And um, so sure enough, you know, things happen for a reason. I'm a big believer in that. Um, Don't try to fight uh, what goes on in your life. Just go with it. So I, I go to the festival and I meet this wonderful man by the name of Robert Bookman, who is an agent of... Ben McIntyre and others, Tom Stoppard and other great literary uh, uh, artists. And he represents the book sale. And I just, you know, badgered him and said, I would like to take an option on this book. And uh, we worked that out. And we'd actually, um, I had hired a, a, a different screenwriter than Michelle Ashford, who had done the first take on it. And it just wasn't what it should be. And I think that, I don't know if you've read the book. I have it right in the shelf. I don't, you can't quite see it, but it is, it is down there. <laughs> the book is a terrific book. However, the first half of the first third of the book is great. And the last third is great. It's the middle that's problematic. It's too forensic. It's too technical. It's too medical. Yeah. So the idea was early on that the way to make this a film that will appeal to more than just um, the armchair um, World War II uh, uh, film lover is to turn the the this purported romance into one that becomes almost a romance 
And that's what I think differentiates this from pretty much any other war film that's out there. I saw the film before the world was at war. Uh, and I've right. seen it, and it, it was on, and it felt like a, a, you know, a really lovely old fashioned British war movie with stiff upper lips and Colin was great and Kelly MacDonald right. and the forbearance of duty. And all of that was great and the jolly old wheeze to beat Hitler. It felt like that. Then, uh, then obviously war was declared, what, 50 days ago. And I've seen the film since, uh, last week. And there's a different, uh, I don't know, there's a different timbre to it. That I, I kept thinking, you know, now we, this could be me in a war footing. Now I could be sort of summoned into the into right, white but, but, but you know, Jason, what I think particularly uh, wonderful about the subject matter is that there are many different ways in which people participated in a war effort that everyone supported which is what's going on now. Everyone is supporting uh, stopping this, this senseless aggression and, and murder and mayhem. Um, but back in the day, in the uh, late 30s, early 40s in the UK, from, my, from what I've, I've been able to read and learn, is that if you were not suitable for combat, you would have to find other ways to participate. Uh, women participated with Bletchley Place. Um, there were uh, people that used their minds that, for whatever reason, weren't in a position to use their bodies. So here, this is a thinking man's approach. You know, I think if you were not involved in the war effort, there was something wrong with you and people would look at you and say, well, what's the matter with this guy? You know, he's not really, you know, patriotic. Mm. So I think it was a way for people to find a way to participate in a meaningful way, even though for many years it was a secret. And yeah. that's what I think was very special about what Ben uncovered. It's a terrific story. It's one of those you think, oh, did I know this? There was a film in the 50s, uh, which I Yes, I saw it. I saw it. I saw it. It was a good film. It was Stephen Boyd and Clifton Webb. Yes. And, but it was stiff. It was very stiff. It was, you know, probably more preposterous than now because it's had, you know, it's had the files un, un, unsealed and the truth comes out finally. And do you think there's an enduring, I mean, it is, what I like about it is it's old, you know, it is old fashioned, but there's, there seems to be a modern, the fact that we're, yeah, we're I, in the I, room I, waiting. I don't think that's the right way to characterize it. Okay, I think something that it's straightforward. <laughs> It's straightforward. It's not a convoluted story. The, the, the plot itself is somewhat convoluted in, you know, as they mentioned, corkscrew thinking, mm-hmm. right? You know, if you're a spy and, and, you know, this was before the Cold War. But it so. felt very much like you, 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 something happens and then you wait for a reaction. So we, we, we all hear now how often are, you've been in a room waiting for, I know, the, 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 the first weekend of your, 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 you know, your, your weekend uh, box office to come through, or you're waiting for a, you know, a legal thing to be done and it's completed. We, we, we wait. And it, That's right. I think things well, I have think changed, but they haven't. We're still waiting to find creating, out. Creating suspense. We know how the war ends, right? Yeah. We don't know this little story, which is one that has been covered up because it was supposed to be. I mean, that's what it was in those days. But Montague was an interesting man. And his brother was also an interesting man, you know, suspected of being a spy, but wasn't. He was involved with the cheese eating and uh, table <laughs> <laughs> he was a And they were a, Jewish, right? No, this was, they were he, two Jewish people. That's right. They were a banking family. Mm. And interestingly enough, way back when I used to go to the Gotham Book Mart, <laughs> I have a book by Ivor Montague. He wrote a book on film editing. He did? Yep. Well, there you go. So that's uh, that was fate that you uh, that you ended up producing. Well, I think it's all connected. Yeah. It's all connected. It's, and and uh, this was something that took me a long time to bring to the screen, but uh, very satisfying and, and a lot of fun. And uh, I'm very proud of all the films that I've done. I did Hitchcock Truffaut, which I loved. I thought they did. A, he did a beautiful job with that. I did the last film that Peter Bogdanovich did, The Great Buster. Uh, you know, I have the Buster Keaton films that we restored. And I think he did a great, I don't yeah, know if you fil- saw Films that. about films, I think, are a tremendous... Uh, I think so. I'm always reading about filmmakers. And, and, and right now I'm reading this fabulous biography of Buster Keaton by James Curtis. What a great book. Okay, so there's, a, there's always books in those. I think I did, my friends did, did the real Charlie Chaplin uh, recently. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that doc yet. You know, Charlie Chaplin uh, is not the character that Buster Keaton was. Charlie Chaplin was really had nothing go wrong in his life until the end when he got a little uh, uh, self-satisfied and um, 
you know, it was the McCarthy era. Mm. Um, but Buster Keaton was is the great American story of someone that had had a comeback at the very end, but was uniquely American and um, had some hard knocks and some sadness, you know, being divorced and his children, uh, boys taken away and their last names changed. Um, so he had a hard time, a really hard, he had a hard time handling fame. He was the most famous uh, film actor in the world at the time. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah. I, are you a, you, do you see yourself as an American, Charles? You seem like a global citizen at the moment. You're I'm a UK. international citizen. You are, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think so. Um, you know, I really enjoy coming to London. I enjoy Paris. I, I enjoy travel and um, and uh, and world cinema. Yeah, there's a lot to learn. There certainly is. So, just from me to you, you to me, I'm asking. As I'm a first time producer, which I'm absolutely loving. The after 25 years of being a presenter and a critic and a talker and a and a you know, host on radio and and on on the newspapers, I'm, I'm making my first foray into producing. Good luck. Um, which you mentioned with, with Frozen River. Any any t- any advice that you can give? I, I'm learning very quickly as I go along that anything goes. It seems. <laughs> well, do you believe in the material? Is it good I material? Love it. I love my material. It's a book about a, a young British kid who goes to Paris dreaming of poetry and writing and ends up getting a job as a waiter. In a, in a, in a, is it a, in a true story or is it fiction? It's a memoir, actually, of a guy who did it. It's a true story. But we can, you know, it's, it's and, fairly and- fictionalized. And what uh, period of time does it take it's place? Now it's to 2015 is when it happened. And 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 what com- what comes of it? Uh, he falls in love with a waitress uh, after mm-hmm. many attempts uh, to find his ideal French woman. He gets he also gets caught up in that the head waiter is a cocaine. It turns out he's a cocaine dealer. So there's a swoop on this uh, on this um, uh, on this restaurant that closes it down, and that forces him to to run away with the waitress and become the writer that he always wanted to do. But it's he, wonderful. he has the story. And, uh, from, and from you have a cast and finance story? Uh, no, well, I literally have, I optioned the book. The options just come through. Uh, and now I'm looking for my, uh, my, 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 my producers, my co-producing and, and, and finance, because it's got to be co-pro with, in you France. Need a, you need a writer. I, I, need I, need a, I need a great writer. The, the writer of the book is, is having the first go at the screenplay. That's how I... What's his name? His name is, he's a first-time writer as well, Edward Chisholm. The young British okay. writer, but he now lives in. He now lives in. Actually, just moved to Lausanne, but he lives in. He lived in Paris, um, as I did, and I was a waiter in a restaurant too. Sure. Many years. Sure, we'll have him. Have him do an outline, yeah. first, and a treatment, and before you, you know, go down the road of a full script, and uh, well, good luck with it. Thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, I'm. It's, I'm, it's, I'm, a, it's a voyage. It's a know, voyage, it's a voyage, I think, but it, it's it's new, very new, satisfying area of the game that I didn't really 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 know and every finger in in all the sort of areas which is so exciting i think you get to you know you get to talk to the writers and the music and the, and the, well, and it's, the a, it's a passion project for you so you just make sure your heart is in it every day that's good right? advice yeah there seems to be no rules otherwise <laughs> yeah, that's right just keep believing and finding the money i gotta find the money that's the that's the thing well you know when you put the project when you put the parameters together you need a uh, you need a you need a script and then you need a director and you need a cast yeah, and you get the money. You'll get a streamer to give you the money. Yeah, that but I want to be in a cinema. I know you do. Well, you'll have to tell them that. That yeah. has to be part of the deal. Okay. No, I, I I just think that in the from now forward, the cinema uh, experience at the very least is promotional, mm. and that if you can have a week or two weeks uh, in, in on screen, there's so many films. I mean, the New York Times is not even reviewing all the films that come out. Yeah. Um, before the pandemic, there were 22 movies a week coming out. Um, they actually did a better job uh, reviewing those than the way that it is now, where there's far fewer. But you never but, know if they're out. You're thinking, well, is this film out? Is it somebody that pops up on Amazon? Well, that's pops that's, up that's on part this? of the problem. And part of the challenge of the internet is that it's so vast. It's such a vast landscape that how do you find anything? You really need, uh, you know, how how do you how do you find what you, what you need to find, yeah. and you miss you miss so much. It, it you know it used to be if it was in cinemas only and you looked at a newspaper for what was playing, you 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 had four corners to work within. Now you have no, it's none of that. There are no borders. Yeah, we live in a world without borders anyway. So I know, but it's hard to make an event of something that drops. Like a cat, like they, they say, it drops on the on Netflix. Or it drops on Amazon. It feels like a, yeah, well, a casual I, I, mistake. I, I again go. Let's go back to the place. The place is where it happens, right? This must be the place. There's no other place but this place, mm-hmm. right? Something like that. 
I do like that. I, I, well, I'm going to I'm going to remember that. I'm going to insist on it. I I might get money from the streamers. You're absolutely right, but uh, yeah, don't discount it. But you will need a budget. They'll pay you 120 percent of your budget, so you have to make sure you bring it in for budget. You can make you can make a lot of money. Mm. Well, that's and what I'm, more important is get it made. I want to make a great film. That's first of all, and then please God, the money will follow because it's a great film with a great project. It's got a great and I you love know, the story. We, we, we were fortunate in raising uh, financing uh, through Film Nation in Cannes, uh, you know, the year before the pandemic. So we raised the money that we needed. We did not have the uh, the uh, U.S. territory or North America yeah. sold. And um, when it came time, uh, Warner Brothers had stepped up in a big way early on, and um, they put us over the hump. And then <coughs> we started to show it in the in the uh, to U.S. distributors. And uh, we were very fortunate in having an outstanding a, a deal offered by Netflix. And um, with a theatrical, it will open at the Paris Theater in New York, which is a dream again for me, where I had many of my foreign language films premiere. And um, more people will see this film through Netflix than could ever see it in a million years in a cinema. Yeah. So, you know, that's a good part. And, you know, so it's in cinemas for a week or whatever it is, you know. You, you see what happens with movies, even even pre-pandemic, movies drop off after a week, yeah. two weeks. That's because, and this is also of recent yeah. vintage, is that movies open up in two to three to four to five thousand screens. I mean, you know, I, I you know boggles my mind. <laughs> Just before you go, what's your favorite screening that you've ever attended? So a few years ago, I had the great pleasure of financing and co-producing Agnes Varda's last film which was called uh, Faces Places, Visage Village, with JR, yeah. this photography. I saw order. it in Cannes, yeah. So you, did you go to the Cannes, the screening in Cannes? I did, yeah. So I was there uh, seated next to Agnes, and there was a standing ovation at the beginning. And then there must have been a 15-minute standing ovation at the very end. And she turned to me and she said, thank you so much for making this happen for me. And then that was the, the screening. And then I had the pleasure of taking her to the Spirit Awards and the Academy Awards. We won the Spirit Award. And um, we were driving out to Santa Monica and she said, you know, I'm so happy that my film is with you. And to me, you know, that's the, that's the when, I was, when I was uh, given the uh, uh, Legion of Honor in New York, she did a special video for me, thanking me. And, you know, came to my apartment uh, dinner with my wife and I and brought her honorary Oscar and it would just sat there at the table with us and we took pictures. So I have great memories of, of working with great filmmakers. And um, that's a very special one. And yes, as well, it's a beautiful film. It's such a beautiful film. It's a great heart in the film. It's just it's inventive. It's and the two generations bickering I'm, about driving. I'm very proud. And, you know, and I'm very proud of Operation Mincemeat. People will say, well, it's a World War II story, but you know what? He's a terrific director. Yeah. And, and, and um, you know, what are you going to do? Tell it backwards, tell it inside out, make it so that people are going to look more at the technique of the filmmaking than the story. No, let's respect the storytelling. And remember, without storytelling, you don't have a film. Yeah. You have I mean, a slideshow. Yeah. <laughs> so right? we need the story. Yeah. But um, story. what I loved about Agnes in, um, in, in Visage Village is that she did all of this? She was eighty-seven, I think, when she made it. You know, that's pretty, right. Pretty, uh, and there was the nominees lunch, I think, and because there was too much schlepping about, she just couldn't get on another plane and make that's it right. over. So she sent a cardboard cutout of herself at the nominees right. lunch, and it was the most photographed figure of of the whole. Play. Everyone went to have their photo next to it. There was a, a whole Instagram thing. She became the most popular by not even being there. This cardboard cutout of little Agnes with her hair. Uh, and I love that about her, her and which which works for Visage Village. It's exactly what the film's about, in a way. How we well, you know, there, there, there are special moments in life where you um, cross paths with people of extraordinary distinction. You know, I spent a lot of quality time with Bogdanovich, and also with Jean Claude Carrière. Mm. Um, I was trying to work on something with him, and I used to go to his uh, apartment in in Paris and spend time with him. The man was unbelievable. Unbelievable! These, you know, um, memories I'll always treasure, and, and and I think that's probably what I'm trying to recreate in France is a place 
we're a little bit like a Sundance Institute where people can come together and explore film through different aspects without, you know, it's going to be very different than the Cinematheque. It's mm. going to be different than a lot of other places. Um, but uh, why not at to this point in time in my life with the ability to do these things, to make a difference in a different way for something that I'm passionate about that I think is, you know, I'm also in the, in the real estate business and, and buildings are created for forever. And a lot of these films are really, you know, a legacy of sorts forever. Yeah, well, they need a building. So, and, and I think that's what you're doing for them. They need them, a place. So. They need yeah. a place. It's also what goes on in the place. Yeah. So I think, well, that's, I totally agree. And I'm very glad that you're doing it because someone has to do it. Thank you. That's why yeah, I'm, that's why I'm you. moving. I appreciate so, it. And I, I love your enthusiasm. You're, 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 uh, you're contagious. That's my new billionaire mate, Charles Cohen. If you Google him, it gets, you get Charles Cohen suggestions. You get yacht, Charles Cohen attorney, Charles Cohen net worth. The sort of stuff you get with billionaires. You don't get to be one of those without making some tough decisions. But it was great, wasn't it, to find one that's still motivated by a passion for movies. The art of them and the spaces of them as much as the business of them. Which, let's be honest, is often just as storied and fascinating as the movies themselves. I mean, we've seen it in the Nick Cage movie earlier. It's the business of the movies, the acting of the movies, the stuff that surrounds them that's just as fascinating as the stories that they tell. That's it from me and the show this week. Thanks to Audrey Divan and Charles Cohen and to Kate Dawkins for putting it all together as usual. I'm off to read another new script so I can produce it and bring it to the screen and review it for you on Made Any Good Films Lately, perhaps. Let's go out with some more Ennio Morricone because you can't have too much of the maestro, even in a two-hour documentary about him uh, made by Giuseppe Tornatore, whose uh, film Cinema Paradiso features that iconic Morricone track that we played um, a couple of weeks ago on the show. Uh, that's out this week. And I've got Roland Joffe on the show next week talking about working with Morricone on the Cannes-winning film The Mission. There's so much music from him in the film. So here's one of his popular hits rather than a sweeping movie score. It's Gianni Morandi and the song is called In Ginocchio da Te, On My Knees in Front of You. It was a massive hit from 1964 in Italy, arranged by Morricone before he started really doing film scores. And it even featured in the film Parasite. Still got all that brass and the strings of a signature Morricone score. So enjoy it. Ciao carissime. Ci vediamo presto. Ritornerò in ginocchio da te, l'altra non è, non è niente per me, ora lo so, ho sbagliato con te.